0: Hi, listeners. Welcome to Sisters in Social Advocacy podcast. I am glad to be here today. This podcast is special to me because it highlights a group of marginalized persons that I have worked with a great deal of my career in social work. Teen foster care is what I like to call it. Today, we are speaking directly about those who have been involved with foster care and or the juvenile justice system. As a young social worker, I remember the teens who I knew could flourish in higher education and from a care coordinator to the the regional director, There was always a push for me to implant nuggets of hope into these young minds in hopes that one day they would think past what their past has dictated. So today I'm extremely excited to share with an audience a small piece of something I love.
1: Hey, Janice. Hey everybody, I totally join you in your passion on our subject. I've been working in and around the youth justice system for almost 20 years. And like foster care, it has been a constant mission of mine to help young people dig through the muck of their early traumas in order to thrive as young adults.
0: Exactly, exactly. As we know, it's not always a straight or easy path to accessing higher education, even when that dream is there. However, did you know that youth with foster care experience are at a much higher risk of experiencing early parenting, homelessness, incarceration, and/or substance abuse challenges than those of non-foster care or juvenile justice um, experience? Hmm. Yeah, so one of the hardest things to do with my young teens was to get them to believe in the fact that they could be street smart and book smart, not looking over the fact that real life situations and sometimes super heavy situations occurred in their lives.
1: Absolutely, Janice. Trauma is real. And for kids navigating the traumas of being uprooted from family and home, school can feel like an even more of a challenge. A disturbing but popular concept in my work is the school-to-prison pipeline. It holds that like schools and child-serving systems and practices are actually perpetuating the path for kids with the greatest needs to end up in jail. One of the strongest predictors for high school dropout is actually any period of time spent in juvenile detention. That's as little as a week. One week can lead to um, more kids dropping out. Similarly with foster care youth. I recently read a meta-analysis of evidence supportive of interventions to keep foster care youth in school, right? And it found that none of our interventions, none of our responses right now in the child welfare system are actually having any impact on keeping foster care youth engaged into post-secondary education. It was a depressing read. But it just shows that like home upheaval and the unmooring that comes with out-of-home placement really hurts our kids. And the responses are just not doing the job. Totally, totally.
0: And I was reading a text from the bandwidth recovery, and it speaks about the loss of cognitive resources and bandwidth. The more experience we have with poverty, poverty, trauma, and chronic mental illness. This was interesting because when we think of those who have come through the foster care or juvenile justice systems, we know that poverty, trauma, and mental health concerns have played a major role in them being placed in the system. And most times not at any
1: fault of their own that's really interesting and ugh, what a cycle right the new york times had an article recently that stated that one in ten male high school dropouts are actually currently in jail or prison right it's depressing we know education is a protective factor but I also feel like our systems are designed to make it particularly hard for system involved kids to stay engaged and hopeful about school
0: ah Thank goodness there are programs in place to assist and help push some of these teens past the traumas into higher education, like the one that we're going to hear about today.
1: Mm-hmm. So true. And we actually, like both the conversations we're having set up for today are really interesting. First, we're going to explore the challenges of staying motivated and in school directly from a young man who is struggling to do just that as he fights a case in juvenile court and navigates the child welfare response to his own parents' death. And then we're going to hear from an education practitioner and credible messenger who runs a college program specifically designed to educate formerly system-involved students. (sighs) These are going to be great conversations. I totally agree. So let's get started. First, I'd like to introduce Kay. Kay is a 17-year-old member of the Just Love Collective, which is a gathering of young people in Western Massachusetts who have lived experience and want to use their voice and stories to advocate for change within systems. I met Kay almost two years ago when he was arrested in Western Massachusetts during a pizza delivery police sting. While Kay has always maintained that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and it had nothing to do with the crime the sting was aimed at, His claim of innocence did not protect him from, like, a brutal arrest, several weeks in juvenile lockup, being subjected to almost a year of GPS monitoring, and lengthy, now almost two-year court process. Janice, the cops beat up this kid so bad when they arrested him that the Juvenile Detention Center actually called Child Protective Services against the police when he came into their custody.
0: Oh, my goodness. And we
1: think about Kay's efforts to stay in school. Right? Like, as we listen to this interview and engage with it, it's worth keeping um, the ideas about labeling theory and the at risk student um, that were explored in an article I recently read by Dix and his colleagues. They asserted um, that labeling individuals based on perceived negative characteristics, as in at risk right, and behavior, helps con- construct a social reality that may not have even existed before but now exists and has consequences for these young people that we're labeling. I think we see this play out in Kay's story a lot, and I encourage our listeners to identify how stigma has almost derailed him as much as the actual experiences of loss and trauma in his life. So Kay, introduce yourself, please.
2: I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts, and I'm in, I'm a junior, mm-hmm. and I kinda got involved with the system like two years ago, I think it was.
1: Yeah, has it been two years now?
2: God, yeah, goodness. I think so.
1: Right? Can you talk about where you were in school before you before you got arrested that day?
2: I was in Central High School. Um. It's a, it's a pretty good high school. It's usually, kids go to to play sports and stuff. It's like the best sports team in Springfield, so that's usually what kids go there for. But it has good, a good band. Mm-hmm. Drama classes okay.
1: Before that night, um, what were you like? Did you like school?
2: Um, I mean, yeah, I like school, but it was. I kind of like that school. I never really liked school in itself, but that school was pretty cool. I kind of liked it.
1: Okay, you had to test into that school, didn't you?
2: Um, yeah.
1: So, how did you feel being there, though? I
2: don't know, it was just, I pretty, I don't know, I just fit right in. <laughs> it was like um, I just got there, and everybody, it wasn't really a different setting.
1: Right. Did they talk to you about college? Yeah. Did you see yourself going to college when you first started Central? Yeah. You did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Who talked to you about it the most?
2: Uh, my one, my administrators, and my uh, I forgot what she was. I think she was counselor. Uh
1: mm-hmm. yeah. huh.
2: Yeah, my counselor. And my oh yeah,
1: she's still so nice. Where did you end up at the night um, after your arrest?
2: Me at the Guruchi Center in Chicofee, I think. And it was like the, a... <laughs> I don't know. It was like for me personally, I wasn't suffering there. I wanted to go home, but it wasn't the worst place to be.
1: And did they have school there?
2: Yeah, they did. No, everything they were teaching me, I already knew.
1: Hmm. And then how long were you at the Grucci Center?
2: I'd say, like, two and a half, three weeks.
1: And then what was it like to go back to Central after that?
2: It was, like, uh, I I didn't feel, like, I felt disconnected, basically. I missed lot. yeah, because it was, like, it was during, like, the last stretches of school where I learned the most, the, I think it was the 1st, January, no, the 11th.
1: But the school said, shut down, right?
2: I got out right before COVID, yeah.
1: yeah. And did anybody at school know that you had been in lockup?
2: Well, yeah, the, that one counselor and the administrator. But other than that, it was like, and the principal, but other than that, it was pretty low.
1: Um, do you feel like they treated you any differently?
2: Um, yeah, it was, they started keeping an eye on me more, and, just like, it was, like, there was less tolerance for the stuff I was doing. I don't know, it just felt like I was being, like, like singled out. I was in a living situation where I wasn't really the, the happiest, and for me to go to somewhere I was going to be happy at, I would have, I had to wear an ankle bracelet for, uh, pretty long amount of time. Um, oh. yeah. And she was, she said, I could choose for those
1: of us who don't, who, those people out there that might not know what, what do you mean when you say an
2: GPS monitoring device, like uh-huh. this, follows you to see right. Here. Yeah. And it vibrates. It's, it's like, like a, like an animal, like a zoo animal. Mm.
1: And so you were on the, on the GPS and then what? And
2: then, when I was going to school, like, pe- like, people started, like, seeing me with it on. The teachers started, like, they were, like, I feel like they were making it a distraction. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I wasn't, like, I'm not the type of person to show off. Like, oh, I got an ankle brace. So. The principal came up to me one day. and He was, like, you know you can't be in school with an open case. And I was, like, I've been in school with an open case this whole time. Like, what are you talking about? And then... Mm-hmm. He was just, he was just like, you got an ankle brace on, you um, can't, we can't be here. I was like, okay, because at that point I was already angry, so I was like, I wasn't really focused on school at that point. So when he told me that, I didn't really object. Then I was out of school for like two, or three weeks, and then I got a. a recommendation to go to this program called Gateway to College, Holyoke Community College. And I signed up, and they accepted me. If I recall, you had
1: to write a couple essays, you had to write a couple essays and have an interview. Yeah, yeah, it it wasn't that easy, (laughs) if I recall. And can I ask you something? All these experiences you've had with school and with the justice system, have they changed your ideas about college?
2: Um, at first, they did. Like, when I first got detained, it was like I I definitely didn't think I was going to college anymore. Like, I thought it was over for me. And then, like, the longer I was – the longer I sat back and thought about it, it was like, it's whatever. I can still go. <laughs> so.
1: Do you feel like you have the support in your life right now? to get?
2: No, I just got a whole bunch of people who won't let me fail, no matter how
0: hard I try. Who was that not awesome? Kate, oh my goodness, he's a super extraordinary young man. But did you notice how he would minimize the hard work it took to get into the school that he needed to test to get into? I mean, did you also notice how he states that He got kicked out of the same school that he had to test to get into because they saw the ankle monitor, although he wasn't causing any problems in the school. So oh, that's a whole nother issue. But we know from readings that obtaining a college education is important. Important both economically and socially for his future. And in addition to higher earnings, a, a college education or degree reduces the chances of an individual becoming unemployed, having negative community involvement, and reduces criminal activities.
1: Right, exactly, Janice. And which is why it's so important for Kay to feel like he can stay engaged and he does have a future that includes college or school or whatever he wants. You know, I was struck by his experience of school in the detention, right? Because that mirrors what the research says about school experiences of detained kids around the country. I read a 2019 review of education in juvenile justice settings, and it reported that most long-term detained students actually failed to make any significant improvement in learning or academic achievement, right? And then the, the authors of this report went on to uh, claim that the effects of juvenile justice programs in their juvenile justice school programs are profound and crippling, right? And set young people back when they should be turning their lives around, right?
3: Yeah.
1: Luckily, um, there are people and institutions that are thinking about how to fill some of these gaps. And that's where our next guest has wisdom to share.
0: Yes, so William Evans is the co-director of the Institute of Transformative Mentoring at the New School in New York City. ITM is credit-bearing, semester-long course designed to train formerly incarcerated and system-involved adults to be mentors and direct service providers for youth and young adults in New York City's justice and foster care systems. As a restorative justice practitioner, William's focus is to heal, develop, and lead systems that impact individuals on a journey to rebuild community and decrease violence and incarceration. William is the founder of the Neighborhood Benches, an organization increasing the presence of local neighborhood leadership to focus on youth violence and incarceration. Prior to Neighborhood Benches, William provided re-entry and counseling support in the city jails on Rikers Island and through a nonprofit in the community. During the development of neighborhood benches, William joined public allies and worked with the United Federation of Teachers United Community Schools as the program and grants assistant. He serves on the advisory boards of Public Allies New York, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, PSX18 in the Bronx, and is a member of the Restorative Roots Collaborative. William and the Restorative Roots Collaborative members are researching the impacts of historical trauma on restorative justice justice practice, but the ways in which, these traumas enhance and impede their work with participants in the spaces we hold. William is a graduate of the Institute of Transformative Mentoring and a 2019 Echoing Green Fellow. William received his master's degree in nonprofit management from Fordham University and started his his doctoral studies in social work at Yeshiva University. Hello, William. Thank you, William,
3: for Yeah. Um, so so born and raised in the South Bronx, you know, um, I grew up in the years where um heroin and the crack epidemic was definitely taking over communities, um, also lend to the to the um concept of violence, um who's impacted and who's not. Um that was also the rise in um the incarceration rate. Um You know um and for me i learned a lot just living in that era you know i'm growing up in the housing developments where everyone is seen as family and you had some who would make sure you're not cutting school some who make sure you you would eat some to make sure if if you're, you're, you're fighting you can actually shake hands and go home to see to see another day um i come up in that era um but you know, along that, that path, you know, at the age of 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 like from 10 to I say about like 14, 15, you know, I learned how to earn by packing bags, sweeping up here in a barbershop, making beads. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when I was packing bags in the supermarket, um, understanding the the value of making deliveries where I can actually make additional money. Um I made a delivery to, to a drug infested building, and on the way out, I got arrested. So, so at the age of 15, I caught my first arrest. You know, and as a result of that arrest, I was um, under the under the um, New York City Housing Authority ex- um, permanent exclusionary rule. Um, I was no longer allowed to live with my grandmother. You know, um, I lost my mother at nine, my father was incarcerated. So my grandmother was my legal guardian. So I had to make make, make a choice or my grandmother had to, to make a choice and knowing her, she would have made a choice to relocate, um, which would probably landed us in a shelter or someplace we didn't need to, to be. So I made a choice mm-hmm. to leave. Um, mm-hmm. And as a, result of, as, as a result of me leaving, I basically was deemed as a runaway, right? And, um, and that's when I really learned more about the streets. You know, um, I got into got into a, uh, uh, um, um, I got into a lot of fights. Um, I wound up getting shot by the age of sixteen in the neck. You know, um, and from there I just grew angry, right? Um, so between Manhattan and the Bronx, you know, exploring different things, um, you know, arrested for like disorderly conduct for fighting. You know, um, had no respect for police officers because I feel as though they had no respect for, for me. So I always ran into different issues with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but those experiences lend, lend to me the knowledge that I had when I went to, to undergrad. Right. Um, but the other piece before I got to undergrad was that I was... I had to leave school because when I was shot in the neck, I left the hospital with staples on my neck. So therefore, I couldn't move my neck. I couldn't walk up the steps, and my classes was on the third floor. And at the time, I was accepted to, to art and design. Mind you, I applied to like 14 different schools. I think you could only apply to 12. I got accepted to all of them on a the waiting list for 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 one. But because I was into to the arts, I go to art and design. But because they wouldn't give me an elevator pass. Um, and I think I was in my third year, or something like, like that. Um, I left school. I stopped going to school because you know I was angry. I couldn't get an elevator pass, which made me more angry. Um, then I started running the streets, you know. Um, and it was there where I learned that not only pe- people care, but you had some some people who just gave up. So a lot of that led to violence and incarceration. Um, but it was through those experiences that I encountered when I, when I returned to school, I returned to an undergraduate. Um, I got my bachelor's and my de- and my degree through that process. But I think the unique thing, thing about it is that all of my experiences, um, because I was at the, the college of New Rochelle, they had this thing called a life, the life arts project, right? And the life arts, project was how you can connect your street experiences right with the books that you're reading right Mm -hmm. um and that alone allowed me my experience allowed me to fulfill those obligations Mm -hmm. um and I think that was important because without those experiences I would not I, I wouldn't have had the direct knowledge a hands-on knowledge that I needed to actually get through my classes um, and and I graduated uh, with a 3.8 you know so so I was pleased with, with that because of those experiences how
1: did you end up finishing high school
3: I mean the new school through the um, through the um the college of New Rochelle so so I ended up getting my GED um yeah. And, and and part of me, in the process of getting my GED, I was really going through it because I be um, because I, I I took like I was taking a whole bunch of exams like the NYPD, New York uh, courts or offices, um, and I was passing those exams. Um, so I needed sixty college credits. So my idea wasn't really to get the, the degree; it was to get the sixty college credits right. that I needed. For the NYPD so I, I took the exam I passed the exam um and, and at the time I passed it with Medicaid I was paying for um I was paying for all those exams with Medicaid okay. um Can
1: you tell us a little bit about what IT what ITM's goals are what the like the pedagogy and the approaches with ITM yeah.
3: yeah so so ITM is focused on um the further the development of mentors who are also credible messengers. Right. Credible messengers, most people would refer to them as OGs, right? But 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 we deem them credible messengers because they, they have the knowledge of what transformation is, right? They have some understanding of restorative justice and they're currently working in the field. But what we've learned is that not all credible messengers are. Uh, mentors until they establish certain, certain, um, certain scales, right? And
1: you guys really take a two-pronged approach at trying to meet okay. the students where they are. One, yeah. you know, kind of helping them unpack their trauma and two, helping them be practically ready for the workforce, yes. which is brilliant. Because yes. this might like about um, you know, in, in broad strokes, the students that you're targeting, trying to bring into the program, but also if how you think trauma might have impacted their ability to engage with um, like higher ed before.
3: Okay. So, so, so for example, right. If everything that you build upon, right. in your in your youthful years had allowed you to survive, right. That's not education. Right. Mm-hmm. So it feels as though the more you add on to those street experiences, mm-hmm. the longer you can survive education is not in your forefront right? But when you start thinking about a career and earning funds in a legitimate way, right, you have to really be prepared to live that different life, right? And that living, living that different lifestyle is not actually um, dropping everything you already learned, but how do you now um, um, put into a practical space what you have learned? How do you articulate what you have learned to other people, right? Um, and, and for many of us, it's about it's about understanding where we've been and where we want to go, right? And where we want to go has to connect to us living this 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 like transformative lifestyle. Um, and I think for many of us, we are, we understand it because we, we started running into different people who have lived experiences. But working in the field, right? Many of them we connect with very, very well because they can they can um they can relate to what it is that we're talking about. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think the important, like you yourself went through the program, you yourself can identify as a credible messenger, and what do you think that does having a credible messenger in leadership in an education program?
3: Um, you know, we, we always talk about program culture, right? Um, if, if you want someone with lived experience who can always acknowledge who's in the room and relate to those in the room, right, and help them adjust based on your own experiences, I think that's important. Like we we can always be led, but who's who's in a leadership role? Right, who's in a leadership role that can better understand what it is that you have been through? I remember that there were times when we we talked about um, unless you had substance abuse issues, you cannot be a good counselor for people that's in the recovery. Right, in many cases we we found that to be true. Some cases we found that to be not so so true so when we look when we look at that right how do we adjust that when we look at credible messengers and i think I, I think it's important that, that, that we understand program culture. Like program culture, the only reason credible messengers are okay with sitting in a space with others that, that have similar experiences is because they have similar experiences. So it makes them feel like this is something that they can reach, right? If it's, if if you ever put something in front of someone and they feel disconnected or they feel as though that's it's difficult to reach, then they're less in tune with what it is that's going on.
1: William,
0: I just want to hop hop in and just say you are amazing, Thickly, Um There's like one percent of those who have been involved with the uh, system, or the juvenile, or um, foster care. And we're not gonna talk about foster care because you didn't go into the system; you figured out how to navigate it yourself, right?
3: Yeah. Well, I had I had a brother living in oh. this system um, mm-hmm. that part of my runaway experience was visiting him at Lincoln Watts. So, um, so, so we definitely stay
1: there. That's like a residential school in New York. Mm -hmm. Did They let you stay there.
3: They did? No, no, but we we (laughs) was able to stay there as late as we we could because the window, the window was ground level.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, but,
0: but the statistics, um, say it's, it's like 1%, 1 1.5%. So you, you were able to take that and, and get your degrees, multiple degrees. And then you're going to, in a, in addition to helping others, you know, try to not be a part of that 1% that's not completing and um, going on to higher ed. So I don't you know.
1: That's <laughs> so interesting. Cause like, I think something you said really to me, right. When you're when you're, when your whole life is built on building skills for, for survival, right? It's hard to make space to um, for like the self actualization stuff, right? Like the, the higher ed, the higher level of thinking, the thinking philosophically, the thinking about movements and change. And- Whew.
0: Now that was heavy, amazing. Full of greatness. Did I say amazing? Oh my goodness. We know that when a mind is made up, despite the struggles, pain, loss, statistics, it can do amazingly great things.
1: Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I feel so blessed we were able to engage with both these guys today. And that they're out there in the world doing good things yeah yeah well all of our
0: podcasters thank you for being a part of our sisters and social justice advocacy podcast and we look forward to seeing you next time
1: bye thank you